You're listening to Zen Sandwich, a podcast that inspires thoughtful people like you to live in the moment, be mindful in a realistic, achievable way. My name is Mark Reed. I've been a college professor and a lawyer. Now I make handmade paper in Japan. Twice a week, I bring my research and thoughts or sit down with coaches, authors, and entrepreneurs to talk about their process. What lessons do they learn along the way and how you can make an impact in your world? Hey, here we are. My guests today aren't merely a couple of old friends of mine. I mean, they they are, but they're also educated, articulate, scholars of politics, law, religion, and philosophy. They might deny the scholastic accolade, but they would just be humble in doing so, as their bios will attest. And I have followed their contributions to a a variety of dialogues that go on in that most hallowed arena of all social and political discourse, Facebook. I uh, I jest, but indeed I hang on every word either of them thoughtfully submit. What's intriguing from my angle is that it's hard to find fault in either position they take, even though they seemingly at times are at odds uh, with uh, each other's position. And that's what I appreciate about good political dialogue, because it's lacking these days. These days, the right wing have their channel and the left have theirs. And everyone seems to want to sit in an echo chamber, have their views simply reinforced. But I don't think anyone at this particular uh, punditry roundtable that we have here today is really interested in being labeled left or right. I could be wrong. We'll find out. With that, uh, Andy Rickles is a 20-year veteran youth worker, which is also evidenced by his Harry Styles posters in the background. I'll, I'll let him defend that in a moment. Uh, he has uh, uh, served a variety of congregations and organizations. He received his degree in religion and philosophy from Sanford University. His interests these days are primarily in exploring the intersection between faith and doubt, a fascinating area of study. And without using the words like mysticism or Zen, uh, I do know that Andy's interests run at least parallel to those avenues of experience that, uh, that he, by his own admission, uh, seeks to find the, the sacred in all of life. And that's not too far from, from what I attempt to do here. Okay, so we've covered the sacred. Now let me move on to the profane. Rob Crotline is an attorney. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm kidding. Let me give Rob his street cred. Uh, Rob's BA is from American University in Washington, D.C., then he went on to earn his law degree from the University of Alabama. He at one point was a criminal defense attorney. I used to be a prosecutor. This ought to be fun. He, uh, he also has been a legislative aide in both the House and Senate, as well as an associate professor on constitutional law and criminal law, among other things. So uh, welcome to the program, Rob and Andy. Hey. Thank you, sir. So Andy, you want to defend that Harry Styles poster? All right. So first of all, um, I, I shouldn't have to defend Harry Styles. The last record was pretty damn good, but this is my daughter's. She's 15. This is her bedroom. It's the quietest spot in the Rickles house tonight. Uh, and so, you know, you, you get some Harry Styles uh, partial nudity if you look close enough. <laughs> so enjoy, my friends. Well, that's what this program is all about, partial nudity. So. <laughs> uh, okay, let's let's start the conversation with uh what ultimately led me to asking you guys to come on the show i had uh i had posted an npr piece a survey 
that found four in 10 Republicans say that political violence may be necessary under certain circumstances. I, I was kind of aghast that I was, you know, that was kind of shocking. What I didn't expect was uh, the, the dialogue that went on in the comment section. Certain people from the right were quick to point out that the numbers were likely similar on the other side of the political spectrum on the left, noting the violence and looting that went on last summer in relation to the, the Black Lives Matter protests. Uh, if they had read the article, both sides were actually surveyed and the numbers on the left were significantly lower. But regardless, uh, there are those on the left, too, who feel that way. And when you combine all the numbers, uh, in essence, about one in three, about 33 percent of Americans feel political violence could be necessary. Hmm. Andy, you brought up a question in that dialogue. What about the outside edges of society that don't really have a seat at the table? So discourse isn't an option. And Rob, you countered with do we even agree on who those people are, the outside edges? You, you noted that black uh, representation in Congress is, uh, is about the same as it is in the general population, about 12%. So a uh, question for each of you, Andy, who is the outer edge? Who doesn't have a seat at the table? And Rob, uh, is anyone underrepresented? Is, is everyone spoken unaccounted for? Andy, you wanna go first? Sure. Um... You know, one of the things that when I was uh, originally commenting on that, um, once Rob commented back uh, with the question about who is uh, sort of on the margins of society, um, it got me thinking about sort of how to find a common language on that. Um, and and so I, I offered up, you know, economic terms, um, those who, uh, because, you know, of their station in life or whatever, um, sort of don't have the economic availability to be educated well, to be, um, I don't know, to, to sort of have their seat at the table. As it turns out in our society, uh, those, those racial lines are there. Um, and so certainly minorities, uh, you know, in my own community here in Birmingham, um, a lot of, uh, of black Americans, a lot of Hispanic Americans, um, you know, have less opportunity, it seems um, across the board, um, than maybe my kids do. Uh, and so I think the important thing is trying to find that common language, uh, because I think we would all agree that our society doesn't work for everybody, um, that there are those who, you know, for, for whatever reason are left out, um, or, or at least pushed to the edges. Um, and so finding a common language to think about who that might be, I think is helpful. And so that's why I, I offered up that maybe it, if we think about them as those who uh, socioeconomically um, sort of don't have the same, you know, because I, I was married as at 19, um, which seems ridiculous when I say that out loud. Uh, and so we, we had our fair share ridiculous. of, <laughs> you're right. We, we've, we've had our fair share of like economic struggle. You know, we've, we've had times where we weren't sure where the rent was going to come from that month, but I, but I always sort of knew I had like, family or friends that that sort of were a cushion for me and a lot of people don't have that um, and that lack of a safety net I think is what pushes a lot of people to the margins um, because you know those who are poor um, every day is a struggle um, and they spend so much time just trying to figure out how to survive that it things like political discourse uh, are a luxury that maybe they can't even afford that, that's a great point and uh, you know, Rob, I, I threw a question at you, but I'll, I'll 
snowball off of what Andy just said, you know, even if uh, 12% of the of congressional representation is a represents about 12% of the population, uh, it, being 12%, isn't it easy to, is, is that enough? Uh, isn't it easy to kind of suppress any 12%? Even if they're even if they're adequately represented in Congress, you then they still have to contend with the against the eighty eight percent. Well, yeah, and I mean, I think you know. First off, I, I agree with with Rickles that uh, you know the socioeconomic aspect is the key. Um, you know, I, I can tell you right now who is absolutely underrepresented in Congress and probably in every state legislature in the country, and that is the lower middle class and below. Um, matter of fact, probably the middle class and below. Um, if you look at the, I don't know that there's anybody publishing the uh, wealth statistics for state legislators, but if you look at, I think Forbes has done it in the past, uh, the members of Congress, I mean, these are some rich assholes. Um, okay. You know, uh, we can sit here and talk about, you know, which races are, are represented or, or, or which are not. And I think kind of at the end of the day, we have to we have to ask the question, you know, does that matter? Um, I think it does. But when, you know, when we're talking about a percentage point here, a percentage point there for different, you know, racial groups, when we have zero representation for the poor, uh, the working class and really the middle class. Um, I, you know, it, arguably every single member of Congress is upper middle class, at least. And then in many cases, they're millionaires. Um, uh, you know, I, I think that is, is a problem. Um, it, it is. How, how do we fix that? <laughs> Solve the world's uh, problems, man, right now. <laughs> that's what I'm doing, man. That's, that's the agenda. Of the show. Well, I, you know, I got to be honest with you here. I, I have to say. You know, the, the first thing that, that came to my mind when, you know, you guys were talking about that 40 percent uh, figure of people that feel like violence might be necessary um, was to ask the question, is that a problem? You know, do we regard that as a problem? I can tell by the look on your face, Mark Reed, that you've already decided, hey, that's, you know, that's scary. And I think I think that word scary was actually used in the headline of the article. It was uh, in the NPR article. And it is. Um, <laughs> I, honestly, I, you know, th this is this may be uh, an unpopular opinion here. Um, I, I honestly think that's a good thing. Um, I, I think that in and of itself is sort of the answer to your question about how do we fix that? Uh, historically speaking, um, the way that, uh, you know, the rich, the politically elite, um, are held in check is by the threat of the masses forcibly chucking them out. And I, I get that if I, if I might chime in here for a second, however, yeah. I, I do think that that's somewhat of an, an 18th century, uh, uh, mindset because, you know, we're not talking like muskets against muskets here. Mm -hmm. We're not talking about, you know, let's the three of us get our guns and go storm the Capitol because, in truth, in the 21st century, if the federal government wanted to extinguish any kind of insurrection or uh, uh, rebellion, it, it would be a matter of seconds to just wipe them out with modern technology. Um, I disagree completely. Okay. I, I well, disagree. And, 
wholeheartedly. With that. Do we make a distinction? Um, in, do we make a distinction in what exactly we mean by the word violence? Does violence always mean violence against another person, or is it violence against property? Um, I, I think that I, I can, in my mind, I can draw a little bit of a distinction there. Um, I would, I would ask what the distinct, why the distinction matters, because I, I think violent, you know, maybe I'm the peace loving hippie here, but, uh, you know, I, I think violence ain't the way, <laughs> you know, well, whether, and, and look, I, I respect that. And, and I have at times considered myself a complete pacifist and I may be now, I don't know. Um, I don't, I, I don't subscribe to violence as a way of life. Uh, but, uh, you know, I come from a Christian tradition. There are story, there's a story in, in one of the Gospels uh, where Jesus takes a whip into the, uh, the temple. Um, you could argue that's an act of violence, but it wasn't violence against another person. It was a violence sort of against an institution that was taking advantage of people. Um, I, I can come closer to being okay with that. And, I mean, I, I think that, like Rob said, the history of every good, you know, protest is is in the word protest and uh, you know sometimes just sitting uh, sitting calmly by um may not get the desired result uh now, now because of my how i read scripture how i you know how i've thought about the divine and all those things um violence against another person uh seems a, a bridge that i'm not sure i could personally cross um, and I would speak out against, but violence against an institution, um, maybe that's different. But at the end of the day, it's going to end up being the same thing. I mean, you know, you, we can sit here and talk about violence against an institution, but people make up institutions. And, you know, if you look at uh, insurgencies throughout history and, and to answer Marx's you know, uh, right post there about it being a, an 18th century. Uh, I mean, I, I can think of many examples in the 20th century um, and in the 21st um, where, um, you know, violence is, uh, you know, I, we've all been taught by our moms that violence is never the answer. Um, however, it has been an answer actually, to actually my mom told me to kick somebody's ass if, if they said something <laughs> bad, but go, but go on. Yeah. I mean, Violence has been the answer to slavery. It's been the answer to fascism. It's been the answer to uh, terrorism. I mean, you know, th there, there are a multitude of examples where, you know, violence is not just a solution. It's really the only solution. Um, I, I, again, I don't mean to cut you off, but I, and I completely agree with those examples. I'm talking about uh, Joe Biden is elected president. Therefore, we must storm the Capitol. Okay, well, but again, you're talking about uh, an extremely tiny uh, minority of folks uh, that, that, you know, participated in that. Um, and, you know, historically speaking, for a for an insurgency to be successful and, and, and uh, for those folks that subscribe to the whole three uh, percent thing about the American Revolution, I'm about to ruffle some feathers. Um, historically, you need about 10 percent you know, the actual total of folks that served in the Continental Navy and, and fought, uh, you know, maybe part-time guerrilla campaigns, you're talking about 15 to 25% of the population actually participated in the Revolutionary War. Um, that's getting into the neighborhood of, of, of what you need. 
And, you know, that's frequently, you know, when you look at uh, Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria and some of these places to, to kind of counter you, um, much smaller numbers have fought us and other world powers like the Soviet Union to a standstill many times in recent memory. Um, you know, so this notion that, you know, are me and my neighbors going to be able to take on the federal government with our, you know, AR-15s and shotguns, um, I mean, just look around the world. Uh, you know, I, I would argue that, first off, the military is not going to be as likely to use a lot of their, uh, you know, high energy weapons on its own territory. And then you've got to suss out, OK, who are we going after here? You know, you can't just go carpet bomb, uh, you know, Centerpoint, Alabama. Uh, you should. Or, you know, <laughs> I mean, you could. And I'm not saying you shouldn't, but, yeah, um, I, I think, you know, th th that's where you get into, you know, I, I think there, there is this belief among many people that, you know, well, you know, you, you can't stand up against F-16s and tanks and all this. Well, you wouldn't be. They're not going to use that kind of weaponry on, on their own territory in a city where they can't suss out who's bad, who's not. Um, that's the point here. You know, the, a, a guerrilla insurgency is not a stand up fight where you're going to know exactly where everybody bad is. that You can go knock them out with, you know, laser guided bombs and uh, you're going to run into the kind of thing that you see in Afghanistan and Iraq and Vietnam. And I, I get that. I get that. And, and in fact, one uh, one aspect of that is that, you know, why we have problems in places like Afghanistan when we fight, fight wars there is that we play by a set of rules that the other side doesn't. I mean, in truth, we could just drop a nuclear bomb on the whole area, just take everybody out and move on, you know, but that's not the uh, the humane or ethical thing to do they don't necessarily use the same set of ethical guidelines that we do so it 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 creates a, an obstacle for us but i, I want to bring it back down to earth a little bit and and away from overseas wars and back to the insurgency in the united states is are we there are we even there where we need an insurgency you know I, one question i wanted to ask later on but i'll bring it up now is this question about fear-mongering and what I mean by that, do, do the parties, and, and I, I am looking at one specific party this time. I, I try not to play partisan politics, but I, I am looking at the Republicans. Just I'm calling them out that that they uh, they use fear mongering to to propagate their own ideology. I, I mean, because Biden was elected, are we communists now? Are they really are they going to take away your guns? I mean, they were saying Clinton was going to take away your guns. He didn't. They said Obama would take away your guns. He didn't. But they, the Republicans do play on the fears of people to get votes. And I know well, that now, that's not going to be popular, but go on. They're, they're, they're being helped by the Democrats in this. Um, you know, it, I, I keep hearing people try to make this argument. Um, uh, you know, I, I was I was a part of the Yang gang during this past election. I don't know if you guys know that. Um, oh, yeah. I was, just, I liked Andrew Yang. I still do. I think, I, I think he's interesting. I think he's got some great ideas, but that's my shout out uh, for Andrew Yang. But um, uh, I was a part of the, the many forums uh, and groups there. And, and the interesting thing about Yang was that it brought together conservatives, liberals, libertarians. And so we had some very interesting discussions and, and I've heard that 
you know, uh, that line that, you know, nobody's coming to take your guns. Um, oddly enough, there was a, a, an event during the Democratic primaries where, uh, uh, you know, Beto O'Rourke basically said, you know, hell yes, we're coming to take your guns. I mean, uh, I, I, you I know, think, so I think he's talking about like high level assault. Route. I'm not here to defend Beto. And uh, and you as a as a fellow attorney, uh, you're, you're probably familiar with the D.C. versus Heller case where I mean, the Supreme Court ruled not too not too far long ago that there is a Second Amendment right to uh, gun ownership. And I, right. I, I think it's. A, yeah. And, and my guess is, is he was probably just using a rhetorical device. At that point, I, I, I don't, you know, I, I don't necessarily call myself a Democrat, but I have voted Democratic um, for as, as long as I can remember. Um, and I don't want to take your guns. Um, I don't own a gun, but that's my personal choice. I don't have a problem with a responsible adult human owning a gun. Um, and I don't really know anybody that does um, as far as people that I know. And I know that's anecdotal. I know that that's not scientific in the least bit. Um, but I don't think the majority of even Democratic politicians want to take your guns. Um, but as far as the oh, fear mongering, it was fear mongering. Right, right. I mean, and, it, yeah, and that's, it was fear mongering. I'm just saying that's feeding into, you know, you, you, you can't put that all on the Republicans and saying that they're whipping this up. I mean, you, you have a you had a prominent Democrat during their primary sure. basically say, hey, yeah, we're coming to take your guns. And then. You know, at, at some point after Biden won the nomination, he even named O'Rourke and or I think he talked about naming uh, as his gun control czar. Right. Um, that's a message. And, and, I, yeah, you know, and, and I don't think either side is is completely you know without fault here. Um, I do agree with Mark that that a lot of Republican uh, politicians are, are hanging their hats on fear um, in a lot of ways. Manifest uh, Sure. And, and but I don't think it's just politicians. I think it's news organizations um, because fear, you know, it'll sell a Camry. It, it, it gets people looking. It gets people. And then those adver advertising dollars come in. I mean, it, it's fear is a lot more um, of a motivator for people uh, than, you know, love of neighbor <laughs> or, you know, general good citizenship or anything like that. That's actually helpful. Uh, you said so the key word there, I think, when you said the news media, yeah. um, I, I, I have to I mean, I think, you know, one of the things I, I tend to carp on and I know um, a, a lot of, uh, you know, people that I interact with are probably sick of hearing me rail about it. But, um, you know, the, the current media climate that we have is a result of uh, basically 9-11. And, um, you know, that was an event that nobody needed to monger any fear. I mean, you know, sure. the fear was present and palpable within that. Oh, my God. And, sure. and, and so, you know, the media lapsed into this 24-7, you know, we got we to know who did this, why they did it, you know, how is this going to change our country? There was so much uncertainty. Um, and I think, you know, you can go back and look at ratings and things like that. It shot through the roof because people genuinely were scared and they wanted to know. Um, the problem is, is that the media never – pulled back from 9-11 mentality. And so now well, is that, is with that every four seven mindset, nobody yeah. needs to lose 24 seven. Like you don't. just don't, you don't need that. And you're, they're, they're now attempting to breathlessly report the 
how and the why and, and who did this and how's this going to affect our country with every single little event. And it gives this outsized importance uh, to things that, you know, I, I use the example of, of school shootings because it's one of the things I studied when I was teaching uh, criminal justice and criminology. Um, you know, school shootings are a vanishingly rare event. And on average, you're going to have six people die in a given year from a school shooting. Um, now, that's tragic. I don't, I'm not trying to minimize that, but I'm simply saying that that is not a 9-11 event. That is not even really something um, that if, if, we're, if we're talking about policy resources, if we're talking about government funding and things like that, it's honestly, you know, it, it really doesn't even rise to the level of something that, that necessarily needs federal attention when you actually look at the, the problem itself. Um, and yet every time we have one, it becomes a, you know, three week news feast where, you know, people are whipped up into this frenzy about it and they tend, they, come to think, I've actually heard, my wife's a school teacher, I've, I've literally heard teachers and parents and, and students talk about how fearful they are of going to school um, because of school shootings. And, I, you know, I'm sitting here going like, you know, from a, a professorial standpoint, from an educator standpoint, who's looked at the data, you know, you should be more concerned about rattlesnakes on the school grounds, that they're going to kill more people than a school shooter is. Um, but, that is not getting the attention from the media. You know, uh, six, six kids a year, there are a hundred kids a year who are uh, killed in, in wrecks or accidents when they're walking or biking to or from school. A um, hundred kids every year. And that's a problem that would be easily solved with just throwing a little bit of money at it, a little bit, a little bit, expand some busing routes improve intersections, put some more police patrols out there, you could literally save, you know, close to 100 lives a year. And yet there's hand wringing and there's marching and there's all this stuff going on over six. Um, you know, again, it's tragic. It sucks, you know, if, if that's one of, you know, your people. But from a policy standpoint, it's completely blown out of proportion by the media. Mm. Uh, well, let's go to the media for a second. Uh, just personal question. What are your, both of you, uh, what are your sources for news media? Where do you go to get news? Hey, there we are. That is the end of part one of my interview with Andy Rickles and Rob Cradline. Download part two to find out where they do get their news and uh, their thoughts on news media, social media, and free speech, should there be any limitations on free speech as well as their five-minute Zen advice on this episode of Zen Sandwich.